0: You have tuned into The Voice of Medicine, the medical podcast filled with remarkable stories, first-hand experience, important research, and valuable life lessons. Open your mind, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Voice of Medicine with me, Michael, I have a wonderful guest today and I'm very, very happy that she found time talking to me. It took a while to convince her to take part in my podcast, but I'm really excited about it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk today to Danielle. She is an essayist, an editor, and practicing internist in the New York uh, City. She is also an attending physician at the Bellevue Hospital um, and a clinical professor of medicine in the New York University School of Medicine. She wrote a couple of unbelievably interesting and meaningful books about medicine from the perspective of a doctor um, that is more than just uh, trying to treat the patient's symptoms. She has tackled so many interesting things in her book that it would be a blasphemy for me to try to summarize it. What I would rather do now that I have the possibilities, let her speak about the books and what inspired her to write them.
1: Hi, good morning, or good day. Yeah,
0: for me, it's a little bit, um, yeah, I would say early afternoon. You have morning there, right? Yes. Danielle, um, when it comes to medical writing for the, let's call it the broad public, I mean, there is only a few um, authors that can captivate readers just like you do. And um, you're a medical doctor uh, by trade. And um, I would say that you're a gifted writer. Um, You produce one book after another. Um, When did you discover this passion for writing as a doctor?
1: Well, I'll say that as a kid, I loved to write books about my dog. And that's what I did when I was in first and second grade. But writing didn't really come back until after my medical training. So I trained at Bellevue Hospital, which is the oldest public hospital in the United States. And I still work there. And during my training, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, which, mm-hmm. for many of us, we're getting a little bit of PTSD and flashbacks with coronavirus now. But at the time, it was we we're quite saturated in 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 death and and suffering as we are now. And so, after my training, I decided to take off a year and a half just to get some space. And it was during that year and a half off that I started writing, and not to write or write a book or anything like that, but just to I needed a place to put all the stories. You know, at the time it happened. I recognized that these were singular experiences, but I couldn't write them down at the time. There was no time, it was too close to the emotional Mm -hmm. bone. So when I finally had some space, uh, geographically and psychologically, I began to write them down, again, just to find a place to put them so that I could go forward. And then when I came back to work at Bellevue, as I always wanted to do, I began taking some writing classes and sending the stories out to small literary magazines. And eventually they formed my first book, singular intimacies, becoming a doctor at Bellevue.
0: So you're still working at Bellevue Hospital, right? Oh, absolutely. How long are you working there now for?
1: Well, not to date myself, but uh, 20 years? Was it 25? Now it's a lot. Since my training, I went to medical school there, residency, and I've been there ever since, so um, since the HIV epidemic, so you can count those years.
0: You know, this is fascinating for me, especially um, now, because I barely see, um, at least in Switzerland, the doctors staying that long in one hospital. I mean, maybe one of you know the um, how should I say um, we call them the old dogs. I don't know if this is an expression in English, but uh, you know, the people who, who sort of uh, you know started in working in the seventies, and I um, mean, you know, they 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 were. Uh, very comfortable there and they're, you know, by nature, traditionalists. So they're like, why would I change? This is my home. Maybe they even live next by. Um, but now you don't see that anymore. People change quite a lot. Usually there is a four to five year um, rate that they they stay in one hospital and then they change. Why do you think that is that before maybe more doctors were staying in one place and now there is a lot of change?
1: You know, at Bellevue, we call them Bellevue lifers. And we have quite a few. And I will say, very, very sadly, last night, we had a memorial service for our first nurse at Bellevue who died from corona. And the room packed. And the, the memorial was organized by the, the trainees, the house staff. So they were very young, and they knew this nurse for two or three years. But then the other head nurse got up and spoke. She said, you know, I knew him for 30 years, as have many of you. We looked around the room, and there were quite a lot of people who had known this nurse for decades. And we recognized that our hospital, and I think many hospitals, um... You know, incite a certain amount of loyalty. And many of us have stayed. I looked around the room, the medical director, the Chief of medicine, the head of nursing, we all train together, and we've stayed, the head of cardiology. Uh, I think certain places attract at least some group. And of course, people move on and find different career options. But um, something about Bellevue has really kept a lot of us there.
0: Um I don't want to stay in this topic for too long, but you inspired me to ask the following question: What inspires loyalty? Um, on the side of the institution that people actually stay that long? If you could if you could name it, what, what is it? Well,
1: I think it's when you have a, a mission that resonates um, and a community um, that helps it come together. So in, in the US, unlike in Europe, our medical system is largely privatized. However, in New York City, we still have a network of public hospitals that have a, a very strong mission to serve uh, anyone who needs to be served. And whether that's, people who are uninsured or undocumented immigrants or, or people who don't have money, whoever it is, or, or the president, you know, we're the, we're the designated mm-hmm. hospital in, in New York City should the president of the United States become sick in New York, we take care of everyone. And so that idea of a mission for everyone inspires us. And then on the flip side, it has brought people who are so dedicated that these are the people you want to work with. They're smart, mm-hmm. they're dedicated, um, and you can see it in this current crisis and And to work with people who have a, a communal mission, it's so invigorating. And, and um yes, it's the people and the mission together. That's it.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, um, you know diluting this into 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 these two drops of the essence, what it really makes. Now, um, with each of your book, you focused on a different topic. And I would like to have a closer look at three of your books, if you don't mind. Um, starting with the first one, the incidental findings. Now, this is the one where you describe what happened to you when you were on the other end of the stick. So suddenly you were not the doctor, but the patient. And I guess this is something what sooner or later every um, every doctor experience, uh, but how was it for you and what changed after this experience? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure there were some profound things that you found out about how was it to be a patient as before you were the one treating them.
1: One of the things the older physicians and nurses, we look at the younger trainees, and they haven't yet become patients, most of them, luckily, but they will. And there's a certain amount of wisdom one gains once you've been on the other side of the stethoscope, so to speak. So um, having been, uh, luckily, quite healthy, my only first experience as a patient was when I had a baby. And um, in in the U.S., at least, one, one of the, the tortures of modern obstetrics is they withhold food and water until you produce a baby. And so when, when I finally had my baby and they bring you up to postpartum, you are so thirsty. And they put down this beautiful, um, gleaming pitcher of ice water and they put it just out of my reach by accident. And Mm -hmm. all I wanted in the world was that pitcher of water, but I couldn't reach it. And it's not so easy to hop up and grab that when you've just had a baby. So I was Mm -hmm. trying to lasso it with my pillow and the sheets and I didn't want to call the nurse. I I know the nurses are busy and this is a small thing, but as time went on, my entire universe focused on that pitcher of water. And at some point, I didn't care who was hemorrhaging out there or having chest pain or dying. I wanted that water. And but I was so dependent. I couldn't get it. And I finally called and said, Oh, we'll come. And of course, they were busy. They didn't come. And I called again and I called again. And finally, you know, by the fifth call, I said, Hey, this is Dr. Ofrey. I'm on the faculty here. I do the water. And they came running in. <laughs> but I felt I didn't want to use my rank, but I was so desperate for the water. And I realized that when you're the patient your focus is, becomes very narrow, understandably so. And small things or seemingly small things become the biggest things. And so now when I round on patients, I'm always moving the phone closer and the ginger ale and the tissues. And sometimes my team is rolling their eyes while I'm, you know, moving things around. But I know that for that patient, that can be the most important thing. And it's hard to realize that when you're on the other side. Well,
0: a lot of, I mean, patients by, by, uh, by definition, when they come to the hospital, with whatever they have, they're sort of, on the, you know, on the mercy of, of doctors and the staff, um, usually in helpless situations. Um, I also assume that they don't fully understand everything that is going on with them medically and so on. So um, they're really, the, I would say the symmetry of power there is is not the same. And I want to say, I, I would like to ask you, do you think that a lot of things um we're also neglected in terms of the emotional that for example a lot of doctors maybe because they just don't have the time there's way too many patients but they they are um, neglecting also the emotional side of the patients
1: i think it's a combination of not having time i mean doctors were incredibly busy there's always way more work than one can do so we're constantly rushing around um but i also think we forget the perspective we forget that patients they don't speak medical ease we say oh the patient had an mi Many patients don't know what that is, but for us, we forget that that's not English. Myocardial infarction or heart attack. People think of it as a heart attack, so mm-hmm. we just don't, don't remember. Or and I think not until we've been the patient or the family member of a patient. You know, when I've gone in with my you know parents or my in-laws or, or my children. You know, again, you suddenly feel quite different when you're the parent, and you become desperate for information. And, and when the nurses and doctors are using shorthand or or just oh you know you, you already understand you're a doctor but actually at this point I'm not a doctor I'm the, I'm the you know parent of a sick child I mm-hmm. I, I want I need that extra emotional tension. so you're right I do think it gets a little lost in the shuffle because and not out of meanness or callousness but just of not recognizing how important it is
0: how was it with ethical questions was there a time um when you were there as a patient that maybe a new perspective on some ethical questions um, came to you where you said, well, I never thought about it this way, but now that I'm here, this maybe should be discussed among our community.
1: You know, when I was caring for my father, who uh, died two years ago, um, he was in a hospital. He really was clearly getting toward the end. And we Mm -hmm. were trying to get him home. And we finally got permission to get him discharged. We had an ambulance to come pick him up. We took out the. They took out the IV. We got him dressed, which was not easy. He's more than. He's about two meters tall, ready to go home. And all of a sudden, the team came in, and said, "Oh, you can't take him home. His magnesium is low." I said, "What? You know, and magnesium is not the most important, you know, element in in the in the blood right now, or at any time. Um, it can be, but certainly not in this situation." I said, "Come on, that's crazy." I said, "No, we must he must get more magnesium." And over my protest, they put another IV in this poor man. And of course, it's painful and suffering. Kept him one more day. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to talk with the doctors. They were in surgery. They couldn't talk. And they made him stay another day. The next morning, I came early to the hospital and I barricaded the door. And I would not let them in to draw his blood. I said, if you draw his blood, you'll find something else. And they said, oh, but we have to. I said, no, you don't. And you have to physically move me if you want to you know, stick a needle in him and they call the team, the doctors, the administrators, and finally, you know, oh, you know, she's a doctor, okay. But, you know, if I if I hadn't been able to fight that hard and if I hadn't had the standing as a doctor, they probably would have come in and drawn his blood again and found something else to keep him in the hospital. And I recognized how the ethical issue of, do we have to do everything? and And again, of the mm-hmm. power dynamic. And so we finally got him home and we got him into his own bedroom and opened the windows and the birds were chirping. It was the biggest victory for me, but I had to fight so hard and I had to fight this system. And they kept saying, this is the thing we have to do. And what does that mean? So, And to me, that's an unethical issue um, and that I think a little differently about now.
0: I have to ask, what is making these people say we have to do it? I mean, are they are they obliged to to go to whatever length, even if obviously that somehow doesn't make sense um, in, in the individual case?
1: Well, they would say his magnesium was low. So we gave him magnesium. We must check the level now. Maybe we gave too much. You know, there's there's medical reasons to do that, but it, it's divorced from the larger context and they want to ethically do the right thing um they don't want to get sued they don't want to make they don't want to harm the patient either they're not tr- intentionally trying to harm the patient so they're doing what they think is correct medically but ethically sometimes the medically correct thing is not actually the right thing for the patient
0: i see already this is going um quite deep and i i assume this uh, this would be a a long discussion even among professionals um with long experience track record um to find a, an answer to this going a little bit further to your second book which you wrote um doctors what doctors feel um you know you you managed to show a different picture of physicians i believe um the way that you know me as a lay person as i see um doctors well not now anymore. I mean, I, I spend some time with them now, but before, when I saw a doctor on a uh, um, a TV show or in a talk show, um, usually it was you know uh, um, a very calm person speaking with authority. Um, he was or she was only asked um, you know on the side of the expert knowledge. So what do they think about a certain uh, certain procedure or certain um, things happening in medicine? So so we get a very I would say hygienically clean picture of of doctors we never really see them in in i would say on the edge or in those very critical situations and i really want to know from from your perspective and your experience how do doctors really feel after i don't know um, working a 18 hour shift or doing that for 13 15 years straight
1: i think that doctors are no more or no less emotionally complex than lawyers or accountants or computer repair people or the grocer um but it's, we're in a situation, in a type of job, where it's not expected to be part of your everyday expression. But also, I think that the emotions, I, I know that emotions affect how we think and how we make decisions. And so for the the guy who repairs your cable, if their emotions are interfering with their decisions, well, you know, maybe you'll get bad cable or bad reception or bad internet. But for doctors and for nurses, and I'll include all healthcare workers, when our emotions affect our decisions, the stakes are very much higher, which is why I think Mm -hmm. it's important to look at. uh, Doctors experience all the emotions that everyone does, fear, anger, shame, uh, joy, um, embarrassment, all, all of these things come up. We're trained to put them aside. And at times that's appropriate. You know, you you need to do your job and if someone's sick or crashing and you need to take care of that, you must be able to put aside your emotions. But you do have to give them their due. If we don't give them a moment to be grappled with, they'll come back to haunt us. And so now when mm-hmm. I see the surgeon screaming at the nurse or someone throwing tools, I think not, oh gosh, what a big ego. I think, boy, there's someone who never really addressed their emotions. I'm sure that person was humiliated you know as a young trainee or as a student and now instead of dealing with that takes it out on someone else and it's all to the detriment of the patient.
0: Yeah I was wondering exactly about this what happens to a surgeon when he's really pissed you know coming into um, um coming into the operation room and i don't know working on a patient or what happens for example if you if you have somebody who is for whatever reason extremely sad on the day you know and supposed to look at um MRI pictures or stuff like that, does he make more more mistakes because of that? Um, I really don't know, but it's definitely an important thing to talk about. Um, when and how can doctors really um, filter and grapple with their emotions?
1: I think we have to. I think we owe it to ourselves, but we owe it to our patients because, yes, we, we can make mistakes. And certainly, I mean, the data are small, but we see um, in small studies that our emotions do affect our mistakes. So, for example, uh, in a oncologists, uh, they looked at a, a small study, but if oncologists were um, working with patients for whom the patient didn't do well and they felt they hadn't done enough, they often overcompensate with the next patient and start doing more interventions and vice versa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and not that it's necessarily right or wrong to do more or less, but that if it's influenced by your experience with the last patient. And it's important that we make sure that each patient is considered on their own and separately. And we have to make sure that our emotional fallout from the last patient, whether it's grief or sadness, whether it's anger, whether it's humiliation and shame for making an error... That's addressed. that we go into the next patient with a clean slate.
0: Well, this is another topic I definitely wanted to, to talk to you about, this is making mistakes in medicine. And I have to tell you, I don't know if you know Nassim Taleb, the uh, the author. I think he once said that courage especially means to voice an unpopular opinion um, and stand behind it and, and stand behind it firmly, even though you have something to lose. Usually what you have to lose is reputation, which is a big thing. And by this definition, I think you're very courageous because a lot of your books, and the last one especially, is uh, uh, when we do harm, thematizes this 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 um, problem of making mistakes in medicine. Speaking about it openly, um, I think it's a tough topic for 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 the community. And not only you discuss why there is um, error, which doesn't need to be there, but you know, unlike. A lot of people who only simply would um, point to mistakes, you're trying to give us some solutions. So maybe if you could take a few minutes and just give the audience a little close-up. Why did you write the book? And what did you find out when you really looked into the topic of, of doctors making mistakes?
1: A couple of years ago, there was a newspaper article about a study that made huge headlines. And the study claimed that medical error was the third le- third leading cause of death in the United States. And I remember my editor emailed that to me and said, is this really true? You know, when, <laughs> when you're the only doctor in a publishing house full of English majors, you get everyone's medical questions. So I, um, I, I looked at the paper and I, and I kind of hesitated I, because honestly, I did not know the answer. Was it really the third leading cause of death? I mean, if that's the case, I should be seeing it every day. I work in a busy hospital, but I don't, or at least I feel like I don't. So I wondered, is it true and we're simply blind to it? Um, in which case, that's a terrible situation. Or is it not true? And, and the data we're publishing about medical error is completely wrong. There was a famous uh, report called "To Err is Human," published 20 years ago um, in the U.S. That estimated that up to uh, upwards of 98,000 Americans were dying per year of medical error, the equivalent of a jumbo jet uh, and a half crashing every single day on U.S. soil. And that metaphor of the crashing jet became sort of the reigning metaphor of medical error. And but as a, so I start digging into the data, and it becomes very, very complicated quickly because one question is, how do you measure a medical error? All right, if you pick the wrong antibiotic, was it an error or was it a judgment call based on the situation? And then how do you know if an error causes death? A patient with cirrhosis dying from liver failure, let's say he was given the wrong antibiotic. Well, that's an error, but he also dies. But did the error cause the death? That's very hard to pick out. So just measuring these things is, is fraught. So I think we don't actually know the answer of you know where on the list of things that mow us down is medical error. It's probably not number three, although I'm sure it's quite, quite high. And we still need to address it. Now, how do we address it? Well, there's many factors in error. So we talked a little bit about emotions. The other thing I'll just bring up is uh, the way we think. Puts us at risk for errors, so we humans have evolved our brains in a way to be extremely smart. Right? There's a ton of medical information out there, of all information, and if we were to plot through information, you know, bit by bit, we'd never get done. Right? Imagine a patient comes in with a stomach pain, and I pulled off the textbook off the shelf and I started paging through each of a thousand pages until I got to the answer. I'd get the right answer. I'd see one patient a day. So we. We use shortcuts or we call them heuristics. So a patient comes in with certain symptoms and I say, oh, that's, you know, gastritis or, you know, that's appendicitis. Um, and that's actually very effective because it makes it possible to handle the mountains of information. It also makes us prone to error because we often jump to easy conclusions without rigorously questioning ourselves. So we have to really look at our thought processes and think, uh, think about how they both help and also make us prone for error.
0: So I already see that for medicine to actually work and to be able to help people, it it cannot be, as you said, like a computer data precise because it would take forever and we just don't have this forever. So there need to be shortcuts, um, well-established shortcuts, which basically help, but then you have the problem that by nature there is going to be a number of, of mistakes done. And it's actually very good that you explained that it's not as easy to go through the data and to, to, to define what actually is a medical error. If we were now, let's say, in a lecture hall and there was a lot of, of young, bright people sitting in front of you, listening to you, um, maybe some of them um, what, or all of them wanting to be um, wanting to be doctors. So let's say I mean, they're medical interns or students, they just go to med school. What would you tell them what would be sort of like maybe two or three things that you would give them into the backpack on the path to become a doctor, which now, with your experience, you know that it would make their life so much easier and also be very beneficial for the patients?
1: Well, one is the idea of intellectual humility that to assume that we're not as smart as we think and to always be questioning ourselves? and And the idea, you know we're we're so used to like the the doctor hero always knows the answer. But we actually want to worship the hero who says, you know, I'm not sure or I don't know if I'm right. Let's look that up. And that that should be the thing that we um, that we laud. The person who is willing to question themselves, who assumes they could be wrong, um, who assumes they could make mistakes. That's the hero doctor that we want to uh, emulate. The second thing is the idea of clinical curiosity is that we always want to know more about the patient and not just take Mm -hmm. information written in the chart or someone tells you, Go in, talk to the patient, ask them, spend the time to talk with the patient and examine the patient and not take third-hand information. So often we we skip that part, even though that sounds like the basis of medicine or we gloss over it or give it just you know a quick minute, but to really talk with the patient. Um, and when you do, not only will you find more of the clinical answers, I believe, you'll also establish a relationship with the patient and help the patient understand that there is uncertainty. Um, my my third thing, which relates to that, is the idea of being comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Now, we want solid answers, but that's just not the way medicine is. And so we both have to, in ourselves, accept ambiguity, learn to function within the ambiguous zone, but also help our patients accept ambiguity. And I And that requires a good relationship with the patient and good communication. You know, so often doctors are afraid to admit errors to patients because they're afraid the patient will sue them. But if we've established a good relationship, established the idea that things are uncertain and we'll have a lot of things that are not clear, uh, patients can understand that and are much more forgiving. They understand that things will not be perfect and that mistakes will happen. But if they've been given... The, um, the background of that and the format and the trusting relationship, they're much more understanding and generous with that.
0: I think the last thing that you just spoke about is so undervalued. I mean, so many patients come to a doctor um, basically looking for a, you know, simple solution you know I have something give me a pill or do something procedure and then it's done and of course you're going to be right because you're a doctor and and this is this is something what what um patients really I think slowly should start to understand that although the doctor is an expert and then he spent a lot of years um learning practicing medicine so he is not god and and he can you know just Snip his fingers, and and things will be done, and everything will be okay. So I think it's also about managing expectations, just as you explained.
1: Yes, and and that you know, medical care is a process. Diagnosis, it's a moving target, and maybe we think it's this or one of these three things, and maybe over time, some it'll turn out to be something else. Now we have to be open to adjusting our hypothesis to look at data that don't fit, um, to question our own biases and judgments. I mean, listen, doctors and nurses were as biased and stereotypical as other people, but we have to be willing to examine those biases. Are we looking at a patient differently because of if a patient's angry and yelling at us? We may be a little less likely to you know, go the extra mile or consider other things. If a patient is in a group that we stereotype against, we may take their symptoms less seriously And these are things that we can't afford to do. We have to be willing to look critically at ourselves. You know, am I being biased? Am I reacting to this patient because I don't like them or they smell bad or they seem like they cause their own disease and they're not, you know, they're not trying hard enough. All of these things can bias us and we have to be willing to hold up the mirror to ourselves and to the situation and be willing to admit when we're being biased and when we're making mistakes.
0: Thank you very much. Those are really great uh, advice. Last question, Daniel. Is there anything that you have in store for us coming a new book? Is there something cooking up?
1: <laughs> well, I'll say the book when we do harm, it just arrived last night in my house. so it's just it's coming out next week. So I need to catch my breath. Plus, I will say we are quite busy here in New York with coronavirus. Um, and so I, I, I it's interesting, you know, when when AIDS happened, I don't think we recognized in the moment that this was historic. It was just so intense, but it was also, it was a slower moving disaster. With coronavirus, I think we recognize it's, this is historic right now. And so I, at some point I, I will have to think about this and write about it. So I'm trying to just gather my, my memories and recollections. I mean, things are happening so fast. Michael, you can't, you cannot imagine you know, each day things are different. And I think we have, as of this week, I think we are hitting the peak or the plateau in New York. Not, and it's, it's odd because there's sort of these glimmers of hope in the media and we don't really feel that yet. What we feel is we're not getting worse and worse every day. So we're plateauing at a plateau of awfulness. We, our ICU is packed, our hospital is packed. It's not getting worse, but that doesn't mean it's getting better yet. So it's, it's very intense right now. And we, we will take some time. A, to get through this clinically and then B, to sort of think and, and compose our thoughts over, over what just happened. So I hope at some point to spend time writing about this when I can catch yeah, my Yeah, I understand
0: that. We basically been through what you're going through, well, of course, on a smaller scale due to, you know, the number of population and everything a um, couple of weeks ago. So... Um, I, I know what you're talking about, but I can only wish you, your colleagues, and you know everybody else um, um, overseas all the best, and and hoping rooting for you. Um, hopefully, it's not going to be as bad as, as some people projected.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure.
0: This was the voice of medicine. Make sure you tune in next time, and take care.